1: We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show or even in the area of worship they don't need to hear good music. They need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry and then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him and it's this this longing to be a a space where the Spirit would rest Mm -hmm. as a
2: community.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's such a heart and core value of Garden Church, knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party, and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And it's so cool when when, uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. And it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart.
3: Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that we would be good soil, that your Spirit would stir in us the things that we need to be stirred in. That we would each individually hear a word that will feed us and move us and comfort us and strengthen us and empower us into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, through the weeks, Lord. I pray that your resurrection life would be encountered this morning. The wholeness, that forgiveness wouldn't just be things we read about, but things that we experience and extend to others. I pray, Lord, as we sit with that that prophetic song um, for my brothers and sisters that can't accept those words as reality that they are loved by you and I just pray for them Lord that you would instill in their hearts and in their minds and in their bodies today that there's nothing that they can do there's nothing that they have done or will ever do that will separate them that will cause you to look less upon them other than what you look at them now with grace, with forgiveness, with a lavishing of love that you call us your children. Lord, would you, uh, would you empower us to receive more of you this morning? We pray all this in, in your Son's name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, guys. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles around the side. Have, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. I'm much more composed at the 11 a.m. service. That song uh, left me on the floor next to the cross as I sat there amazed by how great God's love is for us. And I hope, I hope that we can sing that song with dry eyes sometimes and wet eyes. Other times I see the tears. I'll pass a tissue box around if you need it. Raise your hand. Um, can we just also thank the band? Yeah, you can sit here, Mickey. Yeah. These guys are are volunteers, I mean we had two drummers, they're taking risks, they're trying to explore the realms of which we can encounter God by just giving us the words that some of us need to sing, the music that some of us need to hear in order order for us to come in. It's really good to be with you guys this morning, we have some new people, welcome. Um, Last week we did baptisms, yes, and we did baby dedications, yeah. So it was a fun weekend last week. Uh, we want to share some stories in the coming weeks, so prepare for testimonies in the coming weeks. We want to share what God had, has done and did. We saw quite a few spontaneous baptisms, um, which was really fun to see some of our parents, some of our friends, some of our, our spouses get baptized uh, between the two services. So it was amazing. If you missed it, I'm sorry, you'll have to look at pictures, but we'll do it again soon. Um, Okay, I got a lot to get through today. There's no other way around it. I'm going to drive through the text. I'm going to get passionate. I'm going to get excited. Um, Hopefully you guys will be with me. So I need the amens of the 11 o'clock service. Uh, (laughs) Yep, already. Let's get it going. So um, grab your Bible. We're just going to jump into Mark chapter 1, verse 15. We've been doing a series on the kingdom of God. If you have been new, if you are new, we are defining the kingdom. This was the primary message that Jesus talked about. This is what he talked about more than love, more than prayer, more than the church, more than demons, more than anything else in the, in the entire Gospels. Jesus talked about this very mysterious, complicated, multifaceted, dimensional thing called the kingdom. And so we're going, to be, we're going to be defining it. And we're in chapter 9, but I want to go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark begins his Gospel with defining Jesus' message in a, in a sentence. And so we, we want to go back to that because as we go through the text, we've we got to recognize that we have to, we have to look at the beginning of the text to know where we're going and what this whole thing's all about. And so Mark begins by summarizing Jesus' message on the kingdom with one sentence. He says this in verse 15 of chapter 1. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We've heard this before. We're going to read it again. But this is the core message of Jesus. What is he saying here? When he says the time has come, he's talking about the age to come that we read about in the Old Testament or the day of the Lord. When we read about this through the the Old Testament, we, we have to recognize that hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walks the earth as the incarnate Son of God. Prophets were speaking about a time when God would interact in history once again like he did in Exodus when he rescued Israel out of Egypt through miracles and through, through plagues and through, through leading uh, Israel through the wilderness with fire and clouds and miracles and all of those things. And there was a time when God would come again would restore Israel and he would usher in this age to come or this new age that was supposed to be marked by healing, by forgiveness, by resurrection, by new hearts, by new spirits, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, by justice and forgiveness and all of those things. And, and one of the, the, the passages in Isaiah talks about um, uh, this this concept of shalom, which is this Hebrew idea of creation back to its original order. It's just everything's in harmony, everything's in peace, everything's whole. And, and, and when Jesus says the time has come, he's talking about that time. He's talking about that age being ushered in by himself. And then he says the kingdom of God the way God intended life to be in the first place has come near. Some translations say you can basically reach out and touch that reality. It's present. It's, it's here. It's in this thin space. That, that, that the way life is intended to be lived is at your fingertips. Forgiveness, shalom, healing, wholeness, all of that, Jesus says, I bring it, it's here, it's, it's present. And then he something, says something that we, we kind of misunderstand. He says, repent and believe. And most of us think that it just means to... Metanoia is the Greek word, and teshuva is the Hebrew word for repentance. And it, it means to turn away in the Greek. If you're going one way, repentance is to go the other way. And the, the, the Hebrew word teshuva for repentance is to turn home. To come home. I love that. That's such, that's such better language. To come back to where you originated. But when you put repent and believe together in Greek, it has far, it has much more drastic implications on what Jesus is doing. When he says repent and believe, when he announces this reality that the kingdom's at hand, that all this is at our fingertips, he's saying, uh, when he says repent and believe, he says become a full participant in this reality. It's kind of militant. He's saying, align yourself with this new agenda, with the kingdom agenda, and now become an agent of this life. Become an agent of reconciliation. Become a partner in restoration of all things. Become uh, uh, an agent in forgiveness, in in restoring, in in, in wholeness, in peace, in healing, in justice, in all of those things. And so he tells those who are listening, his disciples, everyone that's listening... Not only is this a present reality, but now you can participate as partners in extending this way of life. How many of you heard that on Sunday school? At Sunday school? How How many of you heard that you are invited to extend wholeness on earth, to participate in the restoration of all things, not by just reading your Bible or showing up and singing songs on Sunday or going to a midweek prayer group, but by living in the ordinariness to and becoming this agent of all of that stuff that I'll just say is the kingdom of God. That you have power, life, at your fingertips. You, if you said yes to Jesus, can now extend all of that. Well, that's... Mark chapter 1, verse
2: 15.
3: And then it goes on in the book of Mark, just to summarize with a glimpse of the disciples, because we're going to look at some stuff that the disciples are frustrated with today. Um, But in Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus... Excuse me, I'm going to talk right here next to you guys. Almost married. A couple more weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Engage, Mickey, everyone. This is Mickey and Emily. He helped plant this church, was our worship leader for the longest time. Anyway, so where Mickey and Emily are sitting, Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls his disciples. And when he calls his disciples, remember what he does. A rabbi in the first century, when he called disciples to him, he's saying, not only can you know what I know, not only can you do the stuff that I do, but you can become like me. So this this reality of of life-giving forgiveness and spirit and all that stuff, you can do the stuff. As my disciple, chapter three in the book of Mark, he calls twelve disciples and appoints them to what? To be with him, to proclaim the good news, and to cast out demons. This is Mark chapter three, which is Mark's kind of nutshell way of saying to be with Jesus, to, to to preach the message that he had, and to do the stuff that he did. Mark chapter three. Mark chapter 6, which is about here, I think. In Mark chapter 6, we see that the disciples go out and they do that. Remember this? They go out two by two. They cast out demons. They proclaim the good news and they heal the sick. Do you remember this? They do this stuff. I'm I'm getting blank stares. Okay, are are you reading Mark? Come on, guys. Am I the only one? No, I'm not. Um, And then you get to Mark 9, which is where we're at. But we looked at two weeks ago. The disciples, some of them are with Jesus on the mountaintop where Jesus is transfigured and, and He's the beloved Son. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And then the other disciples are continuing the ministry that Jesus called them to do. Do you remember this in chapter 6 and 3 and 1? And they can't do it. Chapter 3, they're called. Chapter 6, they do it. Chapter 9, there's a theme going on. three six nine. What's going to happen in 12? But in chapter 9, they're unable to cast out Demons. Jesus is on the mountaintop and here's the disciples trying to cast out this demon that's forced this kid to be mute and deaf or as I said in the earlier s- service to be muf, which is mute and deaf together when you're in a hurry. Um, to be mute and deaf and, and they're unable to cast out the demon and, and they finally, Jesus does it and they're like, why can't we do this? And Jesus says, look, this, this demon can only come out through prayer and he's not saying a particular type of prayer that is more spiritual than other when you, commit, you, you, you sandwich that with fasting and you try to coerce God to move and midwife his, his reaction. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this, my name only has power when you stand in the reality of what you confess. That prayer is not just a practice or an activity, but it is a reality which we stand in, a spiritual reality that there is a God who has an age that's here and present and he wants to partner with us to bring that into the present, everyday life, ordinariness that we stand in. And so, when demons come... We stand in a reality through prayer that God wants to do stuff. When people are sick, we pray. It doesn't always happen the way we want it, but we stand in this, this spiritual reality, this thin space that this present age has been, has been broken into by this kingdom age and we, we live in partnership with a God who loves us and wants to use us. Whew. That's just catch-up, review. Man, that is good. We should end there. Alt- altar call, come on forward. No. Um, so that's where we pick up, and we also just one more quick review. Ah, huh, this is so good. The kingdom is um, so Jesus. Is, is redefining people's perspective of what the kingdom's gonna look like and he's got disciples that just don't really get it. And one of the things that they realize or that he realizes is that they're trying to figure out who's gonna be the greatest and the best. You remember this? Like we, when we when we get any type of authority and power we exploit it. You know, we're just like, I want more and more and i you know, we did this at the playground when we were the line leader. You know, get in line, go go pull a card or whatever. I don't know. Maybe that was just me. Um, <laughs> But so here's Jesus, when his disciples are, are confronting, he defines the kingdom not as one of privilege or exclusion or, or of status. He, he says, no, the kingdom, if you want to really get it, it's one of service, it's sacrifice. It's one of the cross, the most humiliating thing you could do or experience in the first century. That's what the kingdom's like. Where the world says status, power, all of that stuff, nope, I flip it upside down. Those that want to be first have to be last. Those that want to be greatest have to be the least and servant to all. If you want to be a participant in the kingdom of God, then that means strapping on a cross, guys, and going where exactly where you don't want to go. And doing it for other people that are unable to do it themselves. That's a bomb. That's one of those holy moments. Luckily, I'm not podcasting this service. If we have podcasts at all yet. That's review, so I'm excited about the review. Let's jump in, because this is a serious subject today, and um, let's just go for it. Mark 9, chapter 38. So we pick off, or we pick off, we start off where we left off, and where we left off is with the disciples unable to do what Jesus told them to do, and them being told that if they want to be first, they've got to be last, if they want to uh, be the greatest, they've got to be the least, and that, um, all of that good stuff that we just want to ignore. So we pick up in uh, verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. I just want to read it like a nerd because he's a little, he's probably young, he's probably a teenager. Just so you know, John, the, the, the apostle John was probably 15, 16, 17, 18 years old right in this time. Just just a side note. Um, "'Teacher,' said John, we, "'we saw someone driving out demons in your name, "'and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. "'Do not stop him,' Jesus said. "'For no one who does a miracle in my name "'can in the next moment say anything bad about me. "'For whoever is not against us is for us. "'Truly, I tell you, "'anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name "'because you belong to the Messiah "'will certainly not lose their reward.'" check this out, John, a teenager, so we'll give him that, is is a disciple of Jesus. He's been commissioned to do this stuff. Not Chapter 9, he's unable to do the things that Jesus says. And then right after that, he sees some guy who's not with them, the disciples, who's doing the stuff that they're supposed to do. And he tries to stop them. Do you catch the the humor of this text? That, that this guy's doing exactly what Jesus commanded, but John's saying they're not following us. He's not saying... he's He's not following you, Jesus. He's saying he's not one of us. Hmm, interesting. We want to be associated with Jesus and people should follow us. That's what John's saying. And he's saying, so we try to stop him. And Jesus says, don't do that. And then he says this line. Well, let me just say, what is John trying to do? We, do? we all do this. He's trying to define who's in and who's out, right? Hey, who's really in? This community of yours, Jesus. How exclusive is our discipleship? How much, you know, how much monopoly do we have over exorcisms? You see what he's trying to do, set up shop? Only we can do this. You've called us. So the church for centuries and centuries and centuries will begin to define who's in, by very specific beliefs, rules, and regulations, by certain instruments, by certain non-instruments. I mean, we've seen churches split over non-instrumental. Do you know this in church history? And Jesus, I think, is addressing this. He's talking about outsiders that aren't part of us. What's, how do we address the outsider? And Jesus says, look, don't stop him, because if anyone does a miracle, if anyone can do this practice, if anyone can stand in this reality of my name and do the stuff, then they're, they're not going to be cursing me or, or ca- saying anything bad about me. In other words, they're doing it. They're in it. They, they, don't, they don't need to be a part of this tiny garden or this tiny group. It, it, it can look differently. They can talk differently. They could have different instruments. They could have a preference in worship. It's okay. Let them be. Think about that. Think about how many blogs are being ripped apart right now because of that. Side note. And then he says this, which is an interesting argument. He says, for whoever is not against us is for us. Now, he doesn't say whoever is not for me is against me, which is what it says in Matthew and Luke, if you try to look at the the references. Matthew and Luke read something completely different. It's talking about the personhood of Jesus. Where When it comes to Jesus, there's no neutrality. Does that make sense? If it's not Jesus, then they're, they're not on our side. Does that make sense? you know what I'm saying? When we start talking about the deity of Christ, there's an issue there. Okay? He's, he is Lord. He's the resurrected God. That's a theological concept I'm not going to get into. But that, that, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when it comes to us, the community, look, whoever's not against us is for us. If they're standing in this reality, leave them alone. They're doing it. Okay? Be gracious. Be inclusive. When you want to exclude, Jesus wants to include. Think about our community groups for those of you that are in community groups. It's amazing. Um, and then he says, gives a couple more reasons. And he says, truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Any small act of kindness, generosity, hospitality, any small act will not go unnoticed by the Heavenly Father. When dealing with outsiders, we will sometimes be the recipient of that hospitality and, and gift. And we receive it with thanksgiving. And other times we extend that. And, and you guys, you've got to get what Jesus is up to. He's got this massive picture. And he's not trying to define the kingdom by this bounded fence. He's trying to say it's going to be over here. It's going to be over here. It's going to be back here. It's going to be popping out all over the place. Your job is to mind your business and stand in this reality. And remember that that happens when you pass a cup of cold water. It's like Mother Teresa who says in an interview in... Um, Time Magazine I wanted to read this I love this Mother Teresa was in 1989 if you don't know who Mother Teresa is you Google it right now and um, just kidding Um, if you don't have a cell phone I'm sorry that was rude Uh, Mother Teresa was interviewed in 1989 one of the last interviews before she died and Time Magazine said what did you do this morning Mother Teresa said I prayed when did you start half past four that's 4.30 um, Time Magazine said and after prayer. Well, we try to pray through our work by doing it with Jesus, for Jesus and to Jesus. That helps us to put the whole heart and soul into doing what we do. The dying, the crippled, the mental, the unwanted and the unloved. They are Jesus in disguise. Do you think she gets a glimpse? She gets the kingdom of God. Do you think she gets it? Matthew 25 says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. She gets that there's something powerful, that when we extend hospitality, that when we offer cold cups of water, that that in itself is being done to Jesus himself. And that's what Jesus is hinting at in this passage in Mark. It continues, and I just thought I'd read this because it's a great interview. Time says, have you been successful? Mother Teresa says, Jesus made himself the bread of life to give us all. That's where we begin the day, with the Mass. And we end the day with adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. She's Catholic, in case you were wondering. I don't think that I could do this work, this work of of caring for the poor and the sick and the crippled, for even one week if I didn't pray, for four hours every day. Mother Teresa took in the sick, took in the dying. In fact, she took in 54,000, and of the 54,000 in this interview, 23,000 died. She took in the cripples, the unloved, the the, the poorest of the poor, the the, the untouchable caste system. And she says she couldn't get through a week if she didn't pray four hours a day. Do you think that's standing in this thin space? How many of us go to work without even a a thought to God? And the blessed existence we have, that's vapor. This is not a condemning message. This is about love. Um... I'm, not, I'm serious. This is, this is powerful. I just want to read how she gets this. And uh, It says, uh, Time Magazine asks her and says, uh, but you do not evangelize in the conventional sense of the term, do you? She says, Mother Teresa, I'm evangelizing by my works of love. Is that the best way? Time asked her. Mother Teresa says, for us, yes. For somebody else, something else. I'm evangelizing the way God wants me to. Jesus said, go and preach to all nations. We are now in many nations preaching the gospel by our works of love. By the love that you have for one another, will they know that you are my disciples? That's in John. That's the preaching that we are doing. And I think that is more real. I think Mother Teresa got this kingdom reality that we're talking about. When it comes to outsiders, we simply don't... We simply mind our business and we do our work. And we include everyone to participate in what Jesus wants everyone to participate in. Are you with me? That's point number one. With outsiders, we include them and we mind our business. Now let's jump in to this next section of verse 42. Um, yeah, let me just make sure I got everything I wanted. in that. Cool. All right, let's read this together. Verse 42. Are we doing good still? It's pretty good. Mother Teresa, she was a saint. I think literally. No, she's not yet. No, nope, not venerated. Was she venerated? No, I don't know. Uh, anywho, I'm to take a class on history again. 42. If anyone causes one of the, the, these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This is Jesus talking, just so you know. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your, right, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good but but if it loses loses its saltiness how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Right, we want to break this down, but let's start with verse 49 and 50. Verse 49 and 50 are clues on how to interpret what's happening here. First of all, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Uh, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. There's three points to this that's going to help us interpret what Jesus is saying about cutting off limbs and stuff. First of all, salt, he has called his followers, and the Israelites were called in Exodus and Leviticus to be salt on, salt, to be the salt of the earth. To represent all that is good in life, all that is right, just, favorable, everything that God has intended it to be in the first place, that is what we're called to be as disciples. And if we're not that, then we're like salt that's not salty. We're worthless. If the people that hold the secrets of life in their hands are not living those secrets out, then what's the point, in other words? That's pretty harsh. That's what Jesus is saying. The second thing is this. Salt and fire have uh, everything to do with temple sacrifice in the Jewish culture. If you were in the first century, you were offering sacrifices of, as worship. You would bring peace offerings for you and other people in the community if you, had, if you offended someone. You would bring peace offerings to God. You would bring sacrifice, uh, sin offerings to atone for your sin. And what you would do is you would bring an animal of some sort and you would cover it with salt. Interesting. And the priest would take it and burn it on the altar, and it would have to be totally consumed. And if it wasn't, then it wasn't considered good enough worship. It wasn't accepted as an offering. I think Jesus is saying with discipleship, which is what he's talking about, not only is it worthless if we don't live as salt is for saltiness, but it's worthless if your worship, if your offering, is not fully consumed by what God is getting at. It's like Romans 12. We offer our lives as living sacrifices. That's what Jesus is hinting at. Discipleship costs everything. You have to be totally consumed by what God is about to be a disciple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that um, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ discipleship is simply following Jesus with every aspect of your life, which is what he's getting at. But there's one third point and it has to do with community. And it says to be at peace with each other. Salt also had to do with extending covenant with each other. And part of it is that he just said for the outsider, we include them. And in this first section of 42, we're going to look at it. But... Uh, It says to be be in peace with one another. That as followers, we have to have peace among ourselves. We have to fight and work towards peace. That's what the text is saying. And so as Christians, part of our message is that we live at harmony and peace with one another. Verse 42 says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, those who are fellow participants in the community, those who are believers, those who are brothers or sisters or Christians... If anyone causes one of them to stumble, it would be better for them to experience the worst type of death in the Jewish mind. They feared the sea and they feared drowning. So Jesus is saying it's better for you to to die the worst possible death than to cause someone to stumble. The word stumble is where we get the word scandalize. And it's this idea of, of causing someone to be offended to the point of leaving or walking away from their faith. That's what the text is saying. If we offend someone to the point of where they walk away from the life, it's better for us to have this terrible death. Now, Jesus is not saying it literally. Okay? This is one of the times we put on our thinking caps and we say, does he really mean to cut off our hands? I don't think so. He's not speaking literally. He's speaking in metaphor. In fact, um, so do we get that? The first two points of this sermon. Number one, Uh, is that with outsiders, we're inclusive, we mind our own business, we participate, we live in the reality. Number two um, is that with community, we learn to live at peace. And if we've offended someone, we make peace. We create peace. We extend forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. That's what he's getting at. That's part part of our discipleship of following Jesus. Now, this is the one that really scares me. I want to read this again. Take out your highlighters and highlight this. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Thank God Jesus is speaking in metaphoric hyperbole, which is a technical way of saying he's not saying it literally. He's not telling the guys who stumble to cut off your hands because none of us would have hands in here, right? Some of you guys get that. Some of you are like, what? Now some of you are getting it. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell hell where the fire never goes out if your foot causes you to stumble cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than to leave uh, to have two feet and to be thrown into hell it's better to have an eye one eye and enter the kingdom than to be um, have two eyes and to be thrown into hell with a worm that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched okay what's being said here now uh First of all, Jesus is not literal. I want to make sure you get that. There are ways that we interpret text. This is a very Jewish thing that he does. He speaks in warnings. He's speaking in metaphor. He's trying to make his point really clear. And the point is this. We're not talking about, okay, is is it sexual transgressions when he's talking about the hand? Is he talking about lust with his eyes? That's not what he's saying. It's very Jewish. He's saying, whatever you do with your hands, whatever you do in life, whatever you see, whatever you view in life, wherever you go with your feet, wherever you're going, if any of that gets in the way of the kingdom of God life that you're called to live, stop doing it. He's not just talking about lust, pride, arrogance, adultery, premarital sex, He's not just talking about gossip and greed. He's not just talking about pornography and all those things related to sin that are obviously, okay, we don't, do that, we don't do that sort of thing, right? He's talking about anything, anything at all that gets in your way of discipleship. Anything. Anything that isn't life-giving, that isn't this kingdom life, being extended to the rest of the earth, if anything's getting in the way of that, then then you don't do it. What's getting in the way of you following Jesus fully as a disciple? Here's some questions that maybe will help you answer that question. Um, Anything we pursue with more passion gets in the way of that life. Anything we pursue with more passion gets in the way. Anything that gets more energy, more focus, more time, more thoughts, can potentially, potentially, potentially get in the way of your discipleship. Where are your thoughts throughout the day? Where are your thoughts when you go to sleep? Where are your thoughts when you're wandering and walking, when you're driving? Where are your thoughts now? Now, I know this is difficult to digest, but please stay with me. Now, imagine if I'm a husband. I am a husband. And uh, I tell my wife on the day I get married that I'm going to cherish her. It says that in the vows. And the word cherish is to keep one's mind occupied with. Now, when I'm dating, it's really easy for her to get how important she is, isn't it? You know, I'll stay up all night on iChat. Giving her love and the little smiley faces and XOXO, I love you more. No, you go off first. No, you sign off first. No, no, no. And then it's 3 a.m. and I have to work the next day at six. But that didn't matter because I'm in love and I'm wooing her. And then I open the door every time she gets, you know, goes into a building or goes into my car. I buy her flowers. I, I remember it's this, you know, the month anniversary of the first time we held hands at this particular place. And you know what I'm talking about. There's just love in the air. It's blissful. It's, it's intimate. And, and it's, just, it's just this raw... Every time you close your eyes, you're like, Oh my gosh, we kissed six weeks ago. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to do it again. It's like this, this you're caught in this lavish, kind of this, this, this spontaneous, this thing that we call dating. And then you get married. <laughs> And it's like fantasy football is Monday, Thursday, and Sunday. And, uh, and your work, well, you've got to provide. It's for the paycheck. I'm the one providing. So I'm sorry if I'm coming home late. And I'm sorry I'm exhausted for providing for you. And then date night is just getting a movie and grabbing takeout and sitting, watching a TV, distant, on the other side of the couch from your wife. And then, and then you get kids. And then, you know, well, that's why we can't have our time. And the door is, well, it's just so much easier for me to open it from my side and than, than let you in. You know, you're capable. I'm just speaking for myself. I've blown it sometimes. I'm good sometimes, right, Pam? Um, do you think that's cherishing your wife? Relationally. Or is my work more important th- than her? Is my time more important than her when I don't get enough sleep And I'm cranky the next morning. Am I cherishing her or am I thinking about how I didn't get enough sleep? There's nothing wrong with work. There's nothing wrong with fantasy football. There's nothing wrong with wanting sleep. There's nothing wrong with with opening the car door or not opening the car door. There's nothing intentionally wrong with just getting a movie and watching it with your spouse. But at some point, are we fully in to this thing? And Jesus is saying, whatever gets in the way of your discipleship, anything, good or bad, for whatever it is, Needs to be cut out. Let me let me explore this for a second. What do you pursue over Jesus? Relationships. Do you pursue having a spouse or finding that one over Jesus? Your time. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example from my life. This is easy. Sleep. Sleeping is a really good thing. We should have 8 to 10 hours or something like that. 12 if you ask me. But look at how sleep gets in the way of my discipleship. If I don't get a certain amount of hours in the night, the next day I'm going to be rude to the people I meet with. If I don't get food's a good thing. Eating's good, right? Eating good food is good. But if I don't have the meal at the right time, my wife can tell by how I'm treating her. And I'm not concerned about what God is up to. I'm concerned about what I'm going to eat. Now let's go back to sleeping. Jesus has told me in particular to wake up every morning and spend time reading the Word and praying and spend, being with Him. That's what he's asked me to do. Now, sleep is a good thing, but sometimes I have to sacrifice sleep, a very good thing, so that I can make true to my discipleship. That something as good as rest and sleep can actually hinder my obedience to what Jesus has asked me in particular. Think about this, guys. How do we allow our dreams, our our dreams to get in the way? I'll have time when I get to here. Success. We're driven by by just a little bit more. If I can just get to this next place. But all the while, our participation in the body of followers and community is not there. We say, we say, yes, I get Mark 1.15. That the kingdom is going to explode through my fingertips. Yes, I stand in that reality on Sundays and midweek gatherings. And, you know, once in a while I read a couple of verses in the Bible and that's good enough. But Jesus wants you to partner in restoring everywhere you go in His name. As a college student, as a crippled, as, as a handicapped, you name it. He'll use you if you just say yes. And we're, we're allowing our, our TVs to hinder the things that he asked for me. Oh, this is maybe it's just me. Uh, God's told me to, you know, to be aware of my time because I'm a busy guy. And uh, sometimes, you know, I get caught up in shows like The West Wing, beautifully written by Aaron Sorkin. Incredible script. I mean, just the, the power of the president and the, the staff that comes around and the cause that they're fighting for. And man, don't you want to vote for President Bartlett? And you're just all about it. But, but then you get consumed because you have all seven seasons on disk and you're just going one by one and you've never seen them. So you're on season three and it's just like one more after another after another. And then you forget that you should probably be hanging out with your wife. You should probably be reading a little bit more. You should probably be writing like Jesus asked you. You should probably go hang out with friends that are hurting or sick in this time. But you just want to be alone and you want to watch. It's good. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's t- Totally cool. But for me, it's stumbling. Do you see this? It's not just lust and lies. It's our dreams. It's our comfort. It's our security. It's our names. It's when we need to work out because we need to look good. Guys, how are we participating in life? How are we participating in hell? Now, Jesus uses this as a warning, and we're going to come back here, Um, but he uses this as a strong warning. Anything we pursue over our discipleship in Jesus can get in the way of our discipleship. Now, I just want to say this: sometimes Jesus asks us to pursue things that are really important. That is part of our discipleship. Sometimes our education being a priority is our discipleship. Sometimes this job that takes a lot more time than the other job used to is our discipleship and our obedience to that is to not lose sight of God in the midst of that and our relationships that Jesus called us to. Does that make sense? I'm not bashing that. Does that make sense? We're good? I don't want to leave anyone wondering. Okay. Hell. 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 This is such a good topic in the church. We're we're considering, Bill and I um, and some of the elders, we're talking about doing a series on heaven and hell just because it's so controversial and all this stuff. I want to show you a picture of hell. This is literally hell. Go ahead. Go there. Yep. Can you see it? It's not Bakersfield. It's not Barstow. this is a picture of what Jesus calls Gehenna. Gehenna is a Greek word for hell. Hell is a literal place in the southwest part of Jerusalem. Do you know this? Some of us do. Some of us are getting this for the first time. Jesus is referring to hell as a literal place in the first century that represented something. Now, here's the story behind Gehenna or hell. It's from that valley of Hinnan. We read about it in Joshua 15. Write this down. If you want to learn about this particular area that we call hell, that Jesus referred to, this is where you get it. Joshua 15, 2 Kings, which I don't have the verses. I could find them. I think it's 15 and 21. Second Kings. There's two particular kings in Second Kings that use this place right here, this barstow-looking nothing ravine. As a place of human sacrifice and idol worship. Second Kings, you read about it. King Ahaz and Manasseh, they use this place to build altars and sacrifice to false gods. They sacrifice their sons. They sacrifice humans. And then they were the Israelite kings. They were supposed to represent God on earth, but they obviously aren't doing that. And then Josiah comes along in Second Kings 23 and he outlaws human sacrifice. And he turns Gehenna into a trash dump where the fire never went out. Have you seen a dump, trash dump? Have you seen the smoke and the fires? Hell, in Jesus' day, was a literal place that became a metaphor for the fate after death of someone who rejected God's way. Hell, or Gehenna, this place which you would go and throw your trash became a metaphor for the fate of someone after death that rejected God's way of life. Hell became a symbol, Gehenna is a symbol, of what the opposite of life-giving kingdom is for the Jewish people. So it's kind of like uh, a symbol of pain and darkness and and, and it's just a strong warning. If death isn't warning enough, then the, the symbol of what happens after death is even a stronger warning. Does that make sense? I'm not going to go into the theology of hell. Um, we can talk about that later. But I want to give you a biblical picture of what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to a metaphor that is used in Isaiah 66. The whole worm thing that you read about, that's coming from Isaiah 66. It's coming after two chapters where Isaiah prophesies God restoring the earth, bringing shalom, bringing salvation and restoration. And then at the end, like most Hebrew prophets would do, they bring this strong warning. And the warning is a picture of this valley of bodies that where the worm never dies. It's just this grotesque picture of what happens when you don't follow the way of life. That's it. And we can speculate all day long on another type of theology, which I don't want to get into. And I know there's questions now, but I'm just presenting this to you. Jesus is saying, take this seriously. If you say yes to him, then you're saying yes to to discipleship. And if you say yes to discipleship, then everything that is out there, everything, not just the bad stuff, but everything that good is subject to be in submission to the king of the universe. Discipleship costs your entire life. That's the simple point. It's kind of like heaven is at your fingertips. Don't let hell get in the way. I see a lot of blank stares. This is, this is where it all comes full circle. If we start with Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we realize what Jesus is inviting us into. How on earth are we supposed to stand in the reality of the kingdom of God? when we don't even think about Jesus in our workplace? How are we supposed to usher in forgiveness when we can't even forgive the people that know Jesus? How are we supposed to usher in this shalom and peace when we're so worried about who's in or out? How are we supposed to do all this amazing, all these amazing things when we're stumbling around with things that we do, things that we see, with places we go, not even the sin, but the stuff, the simple stuff that gets in the way. I mean, think about And then the question is this, how are you participating in that life? And how are you participating in the life of hell? Let me give you another example. For some of us, this place, I keep getting in the way. Some of us, we struggle with our identities, We struggle, that song being sung over us, we struggle with, uh, oh, how he loves us. We don't believe we're loved. We don't think we have value. We don't think we're good enough. We don't think we can do anything. We don't think we can pray and someone could be healed. We we don't think we're anything. Right? We, we, and we're, we're, we have this false narrative. We have this terrible picture when God's saying all this other stuff. And God's saying, no, participate in your belovedness. Participate in your holiness. Participate in sharing what you know about you with others. And yet, here we are participating in hell. How do we participate in hell? Well, it, we don't think we're beautiful. We don't think we're good enough. And then we go and we buy, we buy vogue. We buy people. We buy people. We look on TMZ and we allow the world's definition of beauty, which is a size zero, negative two, if that's, if that's a number, with tons of, uh, of airbrush makeup on us, with perfect hair, with the perfect body that's been worked out and cut out by, by, by computer-generated images. And we say, we're participating in the kingdom of God? No, we're participating in the life of hell. Do you see how destructive our everyday ordinary choices can be to a life of a disciple? We say we don't have time to read our Bibles. We don't have time to with Jesus. But we, we post on our Facebook 60 different pictures and 70 different status updates a day. If this is reality, and reality is the simple definition, is that which is, how are we participating in this? You say, oh, I, I want to be generous, but just let me get enough money to be generous. and you're missing all the opportunities of God saying no give it away you don't the amount of money in your bank account doesn't make you generous just so you know everything is put before God on the altar and if it's not all consumed then it's worthless think, if you talk to me, I obviously struggle with this very much. (laughs) I allow technology to get in the way. I allow my time and calendar, my, my need for food. I allow sleep, which is all good stuff. And it's not the same for you as individuals. This message isn't, here's five steps to best discipleship. It's you saying, Jesus, what's getting in the way? Help me Get rid of it. It's not, Lord, I'm condemned. I'm not good enough. And Lord, there's so much more I have to do. And it's not condemnation. It's discipleship. Your life is the cost. And if your life isn't offered in its entirety, it's like salt without saltiness. You with me? So may I say this, as the worship band comes up, may I challenge you and encourage you to consider the life you're leading, the life you're living, intentionally, unintentionally, with everything in, in your life. You, you're a teacher, you're, you're a student, you're a business owner, you're a wife, you're a stay-at-home mom. Whatever it is, can you just take every aspect? God, what consumes my thoughts? What, what do I think about more than you? What do I pursue more than you? And God, would you help me get rid of it? So that I, the purpose, can extend the life you're offering to everyone else. Good? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you that you actually modeled this life as a real man and you, you expect it from us. It says in 1 John, those who claim to live in light live as Jesus did. I pray, Jesus, that we would live as you lived. That there would be no condemnation here. Simply a radical confession of what gets in the way of following you. May you empower us through your spirit to continue as good soil in moving forward. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.